Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So uh, we are working through 1 Timothy over the summer, 1 and 2 Timothy if we get to it. Um, I'm super excited about this. Uh, I want to give a little bit more background. Reverend Cooney gave the kind of lead up, and I want to get us through the rest of kind of the background on what this letter is and where it came from. So it's obviously by Paul to Timothy, and it's written in the last years of Paul's life. Timothy is in Ephesus, which is down on the southwest coast of what is now Turkey. And we get a similar letter to 1 Timothy, written to another young pastor right around the same time, except that pastor's in Crete, and that's the book of Titus. And personally, um, we don't know exactly how to date this letter. It's most likely after Paul has been imprisoned in Rome... But before he has been beheaded, obviously, right? That makes it difficult to write letters. But um, that puts us basically sometime between 64 AD and 68 AD. Because we know that Nero, the emperor who kills Paul, dies on June 9th of 68 AD. So it has to be before then. And nothing um, about the details of the letter makes sense for any other time in Paul's life except the period between the end of Acts, like 64 AD, and then this 68. So sometime in those four years, that's what we're talking about. And last summer, we spent the whole summer finishing up the last third of Acts. And since the, the major events in the book of Acts, between that time and when 1 Timothy is written, a lot has changed. In fact, um, we believe that there are thousands and thousands at this point, when this letter is written, there are thousands and thousands of Christians in the Greek-speaking world. That conversions over the decades of the 50s and the 60s are just escalating and then continue to escalate through the end of the century, the first century. So much so that, um, we've, I, I've talked about him before, there's a Roman governor named Pliny who writes right around 100 in this area, and Pliny complains that the, all, the, all the pagan temples in Asia Minor are empty because so many people have converted to Christianity. And they have been empty for, quote-unquote, a long time. And this is true not just in Asia Minor. It's true in the cities of Greece. It's true in Rome. Nero, when um, there's a fire that breaks out in Rome, everybody knows this story, right? Nero, when the fire breaks out, blames it on the Christians, starts killing Christians. And um, one of Paul's co-workers, Clement, says that a great multitude of Christians is killed. And that's because there's a lot of them in Rome at this point. Basically, from Paul's letters, um, prior to his imprisonment in Rome, we can kind of speculate that there are at least two congregations in the city of Colossae. That's the city that the letter to Colossians is written to. There are, two, there are four congregations in Corinth. There are between four and five congregations in Rome. And there are two congregations in Ephesus. And then there's a bunch of additional congregations in the towns outside of Ephesus, which we'll get to why that's the case in just a minute. So by the time 1 Timothy is written, the church is spreading fast. And it's increasing in number quickly. And um, they're meeting, most likely at this point, they're meeting in house churches. But if I say house churches, um, it is very, very likely you'll get the wrong idea. 
because they are houses where they're meeting, their, their congregations meet. They are houses, but it's much more like what we would think of as a hacienda, right? A big building with a bunch of different additional houses and rooms. And, and these buildings would have featured, these houses would have featured kind of like a main room that could seat or stand somewhere between 100 and 200 people. So these congregations in like Ephesus and in Rome, there's somewhere between 100 and 200 people. So if I say house church, what I mean is, if you just kind of look around this room, this is basically the size of a smallish house church. If Cross and Crown were to double over the next couple of years, we'd be a largish house church, roughly. And Timothy is a pastor in Ephesus. And I just kind of want to remind you just real briefly what this church in Ephesus is like, where it came from, and kind of its, its nature. Um, Ephesus was planted on Paul's second missionary journey. He, he came through Ephesus, and he was traveling with some people. Uh, Reverend Cooney talked about it last week. He was traveling with Priscilla and Aquila, his friends. They, they plant the church at Ephesus, and then Paul keeps going, and Priscilla and Aquila stay and work with the new Christians. And then relatively soon after that, they're joined by the superstar preacher of the day, whose name is Apollos. And um, Apollos has got some details wrong, so Priscilla and Aquila have to take him aside and like, help him understand a little bit better what it is Christianity teaches. And then Paul, I assume because he finds out from Priscilla and Aquila, goes back through Ephesus on his third missionary journey, and he stays there three and a half years. And it's like one of the best times in all his missionary journeys. He is stable. He even rents a, um, like a, a hall. It's called the Hall of Tyrannus. And he, he uses it to have regular hours where people can come and he can teach them what Christianity means. And he does this for three years. And in fact, it's kind of interesting because Ephesus becomes the hub to a bunch of different church plants all in the region. And Paul is sending out missionaries or church planters. He's sending out people who come to Ephesus for trade. He trains them, then he sends them back home. And they begin to evangelize all the cities around Ephesus so that there's a bunch of cities, towns, around Ephesus that are all looking to Ephesus for kind of like leadership. All right, so just kind of to wrap up Paul's story, he spends three and a half years in Ephesus. He goes on. When he comes back through, this is what we heard last summer, he's on his way to Jerusalem. He decides not to go back through Ephesus. Instead, he asks the elders, the pastors of the churches in Ephesus to meet him. And he gives them some instructions. This is in Acts 20. And there's a couple of verses in Acts 20 that I want to draw your attention to before we jump into 1 Timothy, because it's applicable to the 1 Timothy issue. So this is talking to the pastors of Ephesus. This is Acts 20, verse 26. Paul is basically saying goodbye to them. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. This is the first thing that's important. He's saying to them, I gave you everything. I didn't withhold anything. There's nothing I didn't teach you. My understanding of Christianity, I gave the whole kit and caboodle to you. He goes on. This is uh, starting at verse then 28. 
pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. So the first thing is he says, I, I gave you everything. There's nothing else you need as far as Christian doctrine to go about your life as Christians. Second thing he says is look out. Look out because, and, and I don't know if this is a prophecy he's having, or he is just seeing kind of the writing on the wall for this particular congregation. Look out because there will be people that will come from among yourselves that will teach something that is not right. So then Paul goes to Jerusalem. He gets arrested there. He spends two years in jail in Jerusalem and Caesarea. He gets shipped over to Rome. He spends two years in jail at Rome. That's when he writes the letter to the Ephesians. And then Acts ends. And after that, we're reliant on church tradition and the people who lived right after Paul to tell us what happens next. Uh, I believe it's Clement, the guy I referred to earlier, who tells us that Paul eventually, he's released from Rome, and he goes to Spain. He does some mission work in Spain. He eventually comes back to the Mediterranean and is among the Greek cities. He at some point is arrested again, and then he's executed by Nero. And what I want to point to here is some, something changes between when he's in prison in Rome the first time and when he writes this letter to Timothy. And it's actually a pretty significant change. Last time Paul wanted to say something to the Ephesians, he wrote an open letter to all the congregations in the city, and they were to take it, and they were to read it out loud on Sunday morning, and then they were to take it to the next church and take it to that church and read it out loud at that church too. And it was this open letter to everybody in Ephesus who's a Christian. Now he doesn't write to Ephesus, even though he has a message for the Ephesians. Now he writes to Timothy instead. Why? Well, because Paul knows he's going to die soon. Paul knows he is at the end of his life, and so he needs to pass on his God-given authority to somebody else, namely to the, the Ephesians pastor, Timothy. Because Paul knows that the church needs godly leadership to guard and to hold on or hold fast to the truth or else it'll get lost in one, maybe two generations tops. Now we're finally ready to start First Timothy. So uh, Reverend Cooney preached on verses 1 and 2. I'll be in First Timothy 1 starting at verse 3. Uh, if you've got one of the black Bibles, that's on page 779. 1 Timothy 1, verse 3. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. And you can tell immediately that we're dropping into a conversation that is ongoing between Paul and Timothy. They've discussed this before. This is not the first time that Paul has, has urged Timothy, has maybe even begged Timothy, has, has entreated Timothy to please stay in Ephesus. So right away we have to answer a question. 
Why? Why does Timothy want to leave Ephesus so bad? And I think the best way to answer that is, well, we know why Paul wants Timothy to stay. False teachers are causing problems in the church. And, and, and it's different than the other churches that we have letters from Paul to. So, like, it's not like, it's not the same as in Corinth, where um, the, the, the Christians are living like pagans, and they need somebody to say, hey, that's not how this goes. It's not like the letter to the Thessalonians, where they literally just didn't get all the teaching they needed. Paul had got ran out of town before he could finish teaching them about the resurrection. So he has to write these letters saying, no, no, here's, here's how the resurrection works. No, no. At Ephesus, there are people who are very well taught. But some of them are abandoning what they've been taught, and so they need to be corrected. They have to be corrected. And it's important to remember something here. Sometimes when we talk about the early church, we either act like it was this paradise, or it was just utter chaos in the wild, wild west, and neither is true. It basically was just like now, because people are people, and we just behave the same when we're around each other. And Timothy, who is evidently in charge of these congregations, seems to be quietly wishing that he could just kind of skate, just duck out. And not only does Paul say, no, no, you have to stay. But you need to stay so that you can deal with the problem people in that congregation. Because the pastor of a church has two jobs. One of them is fun and one of them is absolutely not fun at all. The fun job is getting to teach. That's the best. If the best job in the world on the days that I get to teach, that I get to study, that's fabulous. The less fun job is pastors have to refute errors. Have to contradict people. And this is exactly what Paul warned would happen. From among your own selves will arise men speaking openly twisted things to draw away the disciples. And Paul is saying you have to stay there. You have to stay and you have to deal with it. And you have to teach them to hold on to, to hold fast to the doctrine that I taught you, to the truth. And here's the thing. Obviously, we're not all called to be pastors. But I think this happens occasionally to every single one of us. Where what we, we, we see somebody that we love, somebody in whose life we are involved, somebody who's close to us, and we see them dangerously kind of moving towards or careening into sin, and we know we should say something, and we know that we should confront it and help them, but we don't want to. It's hard. Or, or we're worried it'll cause a fight or, or just the whole conversation is super uncomfortable. I had one of these conversations on Friday. It's no, it's no fun. And we are tempted to just look away. Just avoid having to do this. Just maybe it'll just like work itself out if we don't say anything, right? We are tempted to, like Timothy, like just kind of leave. But we can't. We know that we have to stay, and 
James gives us a really good reason. This is James 5, starting at verse 19. He says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So we have to. The, uh, the early church father, Ignatius, who also was writing around uh, the early hundreds, also wrote a letter to the Ephesians, said, what Christians have to do is to stand like an anvil under a hammer. Now, doesn't that sound pleasant? I don't know what they promised you when you became a Christian, but that's not, what, that's not how I think of it. How can you do that? Paul tells Timothy, only if you are rooted, only if you hang on for dear life to Jesus, to the truth, then you can stay strong. Look at verse 3 again. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. And, and that different doctrine is kind of important. Because what Paul says there is to teach, he, he uses an article, the teaching, the doctrine. Don't let them teach anything different from the teaching. As in, everyone in Ephesus needs to keep the body of doctrine, the set of teachings given by God through the apostles that we know and that we believe is objectively true. Paul talks about it all the time. Just in the book of Timothy, he calls it the truth, the faith, the sound doctrine, the deposit that you were given and that you have to treasure, the teaching. Now, why is Paul so concerned with this? He knows that, again, it's not long before his death, and he's preparing Timothy for what happens after he's gone. So Paul's an apostle. What, is it, what does an apostle mean? What's the definition of an apostle? Do you know? Yeah, so that's one aspect. An apostle is one who was directly taught by Jesus and then was sent out by Jesus to tell what they had been taught and what they had seen and what they had heard. So the gospel reading today, um, the 11 are in the upper room. Jesus shows up. He, he gives them his peace. He breathes the Holy Spirit on them and he says, I'm sending you out. They're the apostles. So is Paul. And they had firsthand knowledge of Jesus and his teaching. And while they're alive, if you have a question, if there's something that comes up and you're like, oh, wait, wait, how does this whole resurrection thing work? You can just go find one and get the answer to the question. Actually, this is how John, the Apostle John, sends, spends the, the, the end of his life. He's just chilling and people keep coming through his town to ask him questions, and he tells them stories that aren't in Matthew or Mark or Luke, and people keep pestering him, hey, we really need you to write all this down because when you're dead, it's gone. And so finally he writes the Gospel of John so that all those stories aren't lost. Which, by the way, is the answer to the question. What happens when Paul and John and Matthew and Thomas are dead and we can't just go ask them what Jesus said. Well, God provides by sending the Holy Spirit 
to inspire these apostles to write letters and the, the, to write the letters, to write their stories down. We collected them and we call it the New Testament, right? And actually, just as a fun aside note, we believe that Paul's letters, the ones that we have in the New Testament, were collected in Ephesus by a guy named Onesimus, who was a pastor of the Ephesian church at one point. So the doctrine that Paul is talking about is the teaching of Jesus that the apostles have passed down and have written in the New Testament. And um, we don't really match the songs to the readings. We pick the songs about a year out, and then sometimes it's just really fortuitous that the songs talk about what we're going to talk about in the sermon. Other times they don't. Occasionally I'll ask the guys if they will put something in. I didn't do it this time, but this is exactly what the first hymn said. How firm a foundation, O saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he has said, who unto the Savior for refuge have fled, right? Because this is what we do. We pass this down. And Paul has passed it to Timothy. Now he's telling Timothy, Timothy has to make sure and pass it to the Ephesians so that the Ephesians can pass it to the next generation. What do the Deuteronomy readings say? So you can give it to your sons and they can give it to their sons and we don't lose it. Which is part of the baptismal service. When you have sponsors up here, the question to the sponsors is, as the child grows in years, are you willing to place in his hands the Holy Scriptures implicitly so that they can keep it? They can hold on to it. Now, one more aside on this. What this means is that the phrase apostolic succession, you know what that is? Apostolic succession, biblically understood, is not the laying on of hands from one older generation of pastors to a younger generation of pastors that you can trace all the way to the apostles. That's not biblically what it is. But instead, apostolic succession means ensuring that each generation is teaching the same message that the apostles taught, hanging on to what it is that we've been given. That's what we do. Which is why... um, I make the joke that I hope I never say anything original from this pulpit. And that if I die, I would like somebody to be in charge of putting on my tombstone the least original pastor ever. Because this is the goal. To pass on what was given to us. It would be the best compliment you could give me. And, And one of the reformers put it this way, and I thought this was just kind of perfectly on point. This is the difference between the apostles and their successors. The former, the apostles, were sure and genuine scribes of the Holy Spirit, and their writings are therefore to be considered the oracles of God. But the sole office of others is to teach what was provided and sealed in the Holy Scriptures. We therefore teach that faithful ministers are now not permitted to coin any new doctrine, but that they are simply to hold fast to that doctrine to which God has subjected all men without exception. But that's not what certain persons think in Ephesus. Paul says that they are teaching, these certain persons are teaching a different doctrine, something alien to the teaching of the apostles. And what are are they teaching? He goes on, he says, So that you may charge certain persons 
not to teach any different doctrine, verse 4, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations. So he says there's two things that these people are teaching, these, these, these bad teachers. First is myths. And um, what everything I read said is that this likely refers to a nascent proto-Gnosticism, which is your vocabulary phrase for the, for the day. A nascent proto-Gnosticism. Nascent means it's not come fully into, into the picture yet. Proto means it's like kind of in its embryonic state. Gnosticism, anybody remember what Gnosticism is? Gnosticism historically is a belief system that grew up around this time. We see it full-fledged by like 200 AD. And to vastly oversimplify, Gnosticism taught that the physical world was evil so that it, on the one hand, it doesn't matter what you do with your body. Some Gnostics were ascetics. They fasted and they did all kinds of things like that. Other Gnostics were hedonists. They ate anything they wanted and had sex with anybody they wanted. And the only way to escape this material world, which is bad, was direct knowledge of the hidden God. Knowledge that could only be attained through learning the secrets of the Gnostics. Uh, that word Gnos, it just means knowledge. And, and Paul is fighting this. Paul is saying we have ultimate truth available to everyone. Hang on to that. There's no secret knowledge, guys. And actually, the men that we think of as like kind of the early church fathers, many of them spent their whole careers fighting this Gnosticism. And thanks to things like 1 Timothy and people like Timothy, Christianity beat Gnosticism. But what's weird is you can see this way of thinking show up like all the time, like it pops up all through history. And we are still dealing with the idea that the spirit is good and the spirit is the real you, but that your body doesn't matter that much. I was thinking about this and I was thinking, oh, this is exactly what is behind transhumanism. The idea of transhumanism, as far as I understand it, is we're going to try and um, shift your consciousness out of your body and into something that isn't like rotting and going to die. And that's just the same thing. I also, and, and, and there's more to it than this, I also think this is what's behind some of the transgenderism. So I want to stop and think about that for just a minute. The basic claim of transgenderism is who I really am is somewhere in here. Either in my spirit or in my mind, the real me is not this. So I can freely rearrange my body because that's not the real me. The real me is something, something immaterial. Now contrast this to what Christianity is teaching. Christianity teaches that you are a body and a soul in unity. And yes, your body is infected with sin, and therefore your body will die. And when that happens, your spirit will go to be with Jesus, and your body will go into the ground, and it will decay. But that's a tragedy. That's like the worst thing that can happen to a person. Because any disruption between the body and the soul is bad. But our hope, our faith, is that one day Jesus will raise the dead, restore our bodies to us, 
and that there will be true continuity between me now and me in the resurrection. This body, which has a bad knee, and the glorified body that I will have, the perfected body. And this is great news because we are embodied creatures. We desperately need bodies. And if you want to just think about that for half a minute, if you're sitting next to somebody you love, you could just reach out and touch their knee and know how much you need your body and how much you need them to have a body. So that's the myths, these, these Gnostic explanations of, quote-unquote, the way things really are. At least that's what the early church fathers think First Timothy's about. What about these endless genealogies, he says, are also being taught? Well, this is kind of fun. Um, this was a super popular thing uh, at this point. Um, both Philo of Alexandria and the Book of Jubilees do this. Um, what they do is they use the Torah or the law, and um, they don't use it for its obvious reason. It's obvious purpose. They don't look at the Bible, the Old Testament especially, to see the story of redemption or to see what God would like you to do, moral instruction. Both of those are legitimate uses of the Old Testament. Instead, what they do is they look behind the text for some secret meaning, especially in the genealogies. Now, this kind of thinking eventually leads to um, a sect of Judaism called Kabbalah, right? where you find the secret meaning that's in the text that's not on the surface level, and you have to be taught it. It's very important that you be taught it. And basically, this is people who say, I have found a hidden meaning in the obscure, or even better, the boring parts of the Bible that gives me knowledge hitherto unknown by anybody, and I can give you that secret knowledge, usually if you pay me, right? That's how that works usually. Now what's interesting is Paul says that this, kinds of, this, this kind of thinking leads to what he calls um, endless speculations. It promotes these debates like, well, is the, is the uh, <laughs> and you run into this, especially in the book of Revelation, I'll just be honest, right? Is the, is the red dragon this, this empire or is it this empire? Is it the Soviets or is it red China? Right? And you lead to, it leads to this constant, endless debating and speculations, this, this seeking that Paul is worried about, this seeking that never finds an answer. It just constantly is looking for more and new and interesting and, and, and more fascinating ways of talking about it. And the whole thing reminded me of one of my favorite quotes by G.K. Chesterton. Chesterton said, An open mind is really a mark of foolishness like an open mouth. I am incurably convinced that the object of opening the mind, as of opening the mouth, is to shut it again on something solid. Not to just constantly be speculating, constantly having an open mind. That's not why God revealed himself. He did it so that we could find him. Not just look and look and look. This is what Matthew 7, 7 says. Jesus says, ask and you'll be given. Seek and you will find. And where do you find him? Well, I mean, if you want to put it the way that these teachers are talking about it in the boring old Bible, it, that's it. You find him in the Word of God. You find him in the teachings that he has given to his apostles 
And that's why I push you guys so hard to read your Bible. That's the place to find him. That's where he promises to be. However, and this is kind of an important caveat, that doesn't mean that the Bible or God is going to answer every single question that you're curious about. In fact, some questions must remain unanswered. And those ones are sometimes the ones that we also end up getting into debates and dissensions and endless speculations about. John Chrysostom, who's writing in the 300s, said, there are lots of things that we are not told that tend to this endless speculation. For instance, um, nobody is going to ever resolve the tension between free will and predestination. We're just not given that. Nobody's ever going to resolve the answer to the question, why does God still permit evil in the world? We just don't know. I literally, three weeks ago, had a, uh, had a, a high schooler uh, want to get into an argument about predestination with me, and I'm like, I, no. It doesn't lead anywhere. What do we know? Well, the Bible teaches us that God is good. And that he will set everything right on the last day. That he is both fair and merciful. And that those two things are not contradictory. Let's go on. Finish uh, verse 4. To devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. And I just really want to quick point something out. Paul is comparing churches to households here. And I'm not going to take a lot of time developing that right now because it's going to come up over and over and over again in 1 Timothy that he does this. And usually in 1 Timothy, the church uh, congregation is a household and the pastor is the father. But in this first mention, he uses a different image. He says the church is a household and the pastor is a steward. And a steward makes sense in this context because what's the job of a steward? To feed, to bring out the, the appropriate meat, the appropriate wine for whatever the household needs, which is to say, to give the people of the house something to sink their teeth into, right? Like Chesterton said. Verse 5. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So Paul says to Timothy, the whole goal, the whole goal of your ministry, Timothy, the whole goal of pastoring and preaching is three things. First, a sincere faith. That is, the goal that you should have, Timothy, is to present God, to present the story of how God loved you more than you could imagine, even though you rebelled, even though you defied him, loved you so much that he himself came down to suffer and to die because heaven wouldn't be heaven without you. And then that God, because he wouldn't let death have the last word, rose from the dead and crushed the strength of death so that he could show you eternal life. That's the goal of your ministry, Timothy, to present that to the people in the room so that they can trust that God is, is, is sorry, so they can trust God with their whole heart. Have a sincere faith. Second, I'll lose, right? A good conscience. This is the other goal, right? 
Good in what way? This means a conscience that is shaped by the word of God and so avoids two different things. On the one hand, it hates, it flees, it resists sin. Even sin that the the culture around you says is not sin, it learns to hate and despise and resist that sin. That's a good conscience. On the other hand, it's a conscience that also flees self-righteousness that flees, looks over here and goes, well, I'm not like that at least. And it's a conscience that is not proud of the fact that we don't sin like other people. That's a good conscience. Third thing is purity of heart. And here I'm just going to use a a quote from Luther because I think he said it best. A pure heart places no confidence in your own righteousness, in your own power, in your own wealth. But in the mercy of God, The pure heart is one that knows that it is saved solely by the mercy of God and that it is special for that same reason. And if you have a pure heart, Jesus says that the pure will see God, which means you will see and you will know God and you will love him as a result of that seeing and that knowing. And then because you love him, you will love the people that he loves, which is everybody around you. And this is the point of teaching the word, Paul says to Timothy. So let's finish this passage off. The aim of our charge, verse 5, is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion. Desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. And Paul says, certain people, and Timothy, you know who we're talking about here. And then he uses two verbs that I think are kind of terrifying. Have wandered and have swerved. They've wandered from, they've swerved from the eyewitness account of the apostles about Jesus. They're not holding on to what was given to them. They want something else, something more. And because they've not held on to Jesus, all of a sudden they find that they have an empty center and they fill that empty center with vain discussions, with endless talking, with cynical ways of dealing with things. And worse, these are the people who want to be teachers. Now, why is this a problem? Doesn't Paul tell us that we should desire the higher gifts, including teaching? Yes, but Hebrews cautions that no one takes the honor of ministry on himself, but only accepts it when he is called by God. It's the same as what Paul says in 2 Corinthians. God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, and it's important that it's God who does the appointing. These people in Ephesus, they want to do it themselves. They want to be the ones who step into the role. But Jesus says, you should not want to be called teacher. You should not want to be called rabbi because those who exalt themselves will be what? Humbled. And those who humble themselves are the only ones who will be exalted. And this is true of these certain persons too. 
And Paul kind of shows for them for what comic figures they are. They think that they're teachers. They make confident assertions, but they don't understand what they're saying. They don't even understand the, 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 the stuff that they're teaching properly, which is why Paul is telling Timothy us to stay. Not to engage in vain discussions, not to get into fights with them, because Proverbs 29.9 says, if a wise man has an argument with a fool, the fool only rages and laughs, and there is no quiet. No. He wants Timothy to stay because he's to charge them not to teach any different doctrine, to charge them to hold on to what was taught by the apostles who were the eyewitnesses, and to lead them back to the faith. Um, as I was thinking through this, uh, Luther wrote a hymn. It's one of my favorite of the hymns that we sing here. And I haven't sung in a little while in a sermon, so I'm just going to sing it to you because it's perfect, okay? Lord, keep us steadfast in your word. Curb those who by deceit or sword would wrest the kingdom from your son and bring to naught all he has done. This is Timothy's charge, to fight this fight. Amen.